Amen. I would encourage you now, if you are able to please rise as we read God's Word together. From Luke chapter 2, we'll be reading from verses 8 to verse 20 this morning. And as we come to a very familiar text, let us be reminded once again that this is the Word of the Lord. And as though we've heard it many, many times, it's the same Word that spoke the earth and the universe into existence, now speaks to us. Hear the reading of God's Word this morning. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks for this, your word. I pray that you would carry the words of mine to the people gathered here today. That Holy Spirit, you would take your word and you would mold, you would shape lives. For you have told us that many things will wither and pass away like the grasses and the flowers. But your word will stand firm and true. And so uphold that promise for us here and now this day that Your Word would hold us firm and true. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you think of the Christmas story, what are the images that you think of? We think of this chapter in Luke's Gospel, don't we? In Luke chapter 2. We read this every single year in some context. Whether that's in church or in a children's program, Luke 2, 8-20 is read every single year. Year. We think of these verses. We think of angels. We think of shepherds. We think of Mary and Joseph. And we think of their journey to Bethlehem. And we think of this woman who is about ready to give birth and she can't find any place to stay. So she goes to this outpost where there's a stable. But perhaps the most well-known image, the one that's on nearly every single Christmas card, every single thing that is is out there, the the thing that's on the front of city halls and in the yards of our neighbors, we think of the manger scene. This is what we think of when we think of Christmas. However, there's more to it than that. But this is what we think of. It seems to me that the manger then has a really important part to play in this story. If we were to have read the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, we would have seen that in the first 20 verses of Luke's second chapter, that the word manger is used three times. 
Now, I've told you in a number of different contexts and a number of different times that we need to be paying attention to these kind of things. If we see a word mentioned over and over again in a short amount of time, we need to pay attention. We'll hear the word manger, which is not an overly used word, but it's used three times in 20 verses. I think that qualifies as something to pay attention to. But what is it about the manger that is so important? Luke must have thought very highly of the manger, right? And so then it's no wonder that the manger is on every Christmas card. It's the thing that are sold in Walmart in big plastic pieces. The manger seems to have a very large part to play in this story. Have you ever tried pointing something to a dog? You have a dog and you try to point out a toy or a squirrel or a rabbit and you point your finger for the dog. Look at your toy. There's your ball. There's a squirrel. Well, what does the dog look at when you point your finger? He doesn't look at the toy. He doesn't look at the rabbit. Where does he look? He looks at your finger. For a dog doesn't know much better. But as much as you point to the toy or as much as you point to the ball, the dog continues to look at your finger. This is a bit of what's happening in Luke chapter 2. To focus on the manger is to focus on the finger. You see, the object is what we need to keep in mind, not the symbol. The manger then is simply a sign, a sign given to the shepherds by the angel. When you see this, you've come across something. When you see Mary and Joseph putting their baby in a manger, which is a bit of an unusual thing to do, as maybe the Rodriguez's have found out this week, that you usually don't put your child in a feeding trough after you've given birth. So this would be a sign to the shepherds. You're going to find this man and this woman and a baby lying in a manger. Here's your sign. And the sign then is pointing to something that Yahweh is in the flesh. This child lying in a manger, this sign to you is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords in a manger. The angels knew what they were talking about. The language that the angels use is also important. The the language that they used with the shepherds was intentional and very powerful. The word of the Lord, the word for Lord that is used here in Luke chapter 2 is the same word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word Lord is the same word that's used to translate Yahweh into the Greek language. In addition to that, the angels also use the word Christ, which is the word anointed one. So here the angels are pointing to something. Not only are they saying, here's a sign of you for you in this manger, but when you find this sign, when you see this manger, you will find Yahweh, the Messiah, the anointed one. And now it all seems to be coming back into focus. But now why does this matter to the shepherds? The shepherds are the outcasts, right? We know this. They're the, they're the lonely people that are on the outside of the city, on the outskirts of, 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 of society. They're not the most well-reputable people in the town. But I did some work on this, trying to figure out why, why is it that perhaps the angels came to the shepherds? Or why is the shepherds so important in this story? And I came across a number of commentators and a number of theologians that 
that have come to some conclusion about who the shepherds were. And I could give you lots of context as far as old Hebrew uh, literature and documents that support this fact, or support this argument, I should say, that the, the shepherds weren't just some ordinary shepherds. They weren't just some guys out in some random field somewhere. But the shepherds here in this story actually had some significance because if you remember, Mary and Joseph were going to Bethlehem for a census and that usually meant there was a time where the people would gather in a temple and there would be times of sacrifices. And in these Old Testament uh, documents and books, they would document that there was a prescription that the, 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 the lambs for the sacrifice would have to come from a certain vicinity within the city, wall, outside the city walls. You couldn't just take some sheep from somewhere and bring it in. It had to be from that place in a certain radius outside the city. And the shepherds that were charged with providing these sacrifices were of somewhat important people. And so what does that mean? It means that these shepherds had some level of understanding of what the angels were saying. They knew something about Jewish tradition. They knew something about Jewish law. Most likely they were Jews themselves. And so here, these angels show up on the scene. They're going about their jobs. They're doing what shepherds do. They're tending their flocks. And then an angel says to them, to you this day is born Yahweh, the Christ, the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And you'll find him lying in a manger. The angels then point their finger essentially and say, this is where you will find him. You will find this Messiah, this Christ, in a lowly place for lowly people. But the Savior has been born. He's been born to you this day. And the angels say this to the most lowly of people of the day and age. Unto, this, unto you this day, a Savior is born. Friends, this section of the Lord's Word is not only special because it brings to us the most wonderful story ever told, but it also speaks to the very core of who we are. We may not be shepherds out in the fields tending our flocks. But like the shepherds, many of us feel like we're on the outside of the walls. Lonely, tired, exhausted, especially this time of the year. Going about our daily lives. Going about what we do day in and day out. And we wonder, what is the point in all of it? We just keep checking off another day another task, another event, another thing. This is what the shepherds were doing. And the angels come onto the scene. And they sing to these shepherds going about life on this night, unto you, unto us. Yahweh has taken on flesh. The Messiah has come. And He's come to give you peace. He's come to give you true peace and true joy. This is the wonder and the miracle of the Christmas story. Yahweh takes on flesh. And He's born to you. What a wonderful story. But it's not the manger, not the donkeys, not the sheep, 
not the shepherds, not the wise men, not Joseph, not even Mary. But when we see a manger, we have found the Messiah. Yahweh in the flesh. The angels knew what they were talking about. There are so many things that stand out to me about this familiar text. There are so many things that are intriguing, fascinating, interesting, and even inspiring. And there are all sorts of ways we could go about approaching this text. But one of the things that has always stood out to me year in and year out was one response. The response of the shepherds as the angels appeared to them. Do you remember what happened? Luke tells us that the angels appeared and the shepherds were filled with fear. And some of us were like, well, of course they were full of fear because here's an angel appearing out of the sky and starts talking to them. And you'd be like, wow, yes, we can understand that fear. But there's something I want to, to draw out of this story that perhaps I find interesting, and I hope you do as well, is there's something that is pulled out of the Old Testament in Luke's gospel here in this second chapter. I want us to recall another bit of scripture this morning, and you'll know this story well also. But remember what it was as we saw in verse 8 here in Luke's second gospel. And in the same region, in verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. That's the scene, right? The angels appear. Now, I want to take us back to Exodus chapter 3. So pulling something out of the Old Testament and pulling it into the New Testament comes these, ver- these words from Exodus 3, 1 and a few verses following. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this moment, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Seems like a remarkably similar scene that we find in Luke 2. Moses was tending his sheep and an angel of the Lord appeared to him and he was full of fear. In Luke 2, the shepherds were tending their flocks. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and they were filled with fear. Now, the shepherds did not come face to face with the Lord as did Moses, but the glory of the Lord shone all around the shepherds. And so like the shepherds, Moses was indeed doing the same task, going about his business and was confronted by the glory of the person of the Lord and his response, great fear. And then we could go down to other scriptures as well. We could go back further into Genesis chapter 3. And we can remember that Adam and Eve were going about their lives and they had rebelled against the Lord. And when the Lord confronted them, do you remember what their response was? They hid because they were greatly afraid. Why does the appearance of the Lord elicit fear in our response? 
There could be a lengthy discourse to that answer. But perhaps you allow me to narrow it down a bit smaller perspective. First, I believe the Lord's appearance to us strikes fear because we understand that He is greater than we and we recognize His power and the might that He possesses. Secondly, and I think is where it applies to this text a little bit more uh, accurately, is I, I think that in each of these examples, whether it's Adam and Eve, Moses, or the shepherds, they're confronted with the holiness of God. The glory of God. And when these people see the holiness and the glory of God, they're met with something real. They're met with the reality that He is holy, He is God, and they are not. And that fills them and it fills us with fear. You see, Adam and Eve knew they had rebelled and they were full of fear. Moses knew that he was not holy and not worthy to stand in the presence of the Lord and he was filled with fear. And the shepherds knew that they were not worthy to be in the presence and yet they were filled with fear. There's something about fear. We don't like it. For good reason, we don't like it and we tend to push away the things that we're afraid of or at least the things that elicit fear in our lives. Or maybe we can say this way. We push away the things that remind us of our unholiness, of our brokenness, of our mistakes, and who we are. And when we're confronted in that, we get defensive. And it's really difficult to grapple with the reality of our unholiness. And we turn to fear. So when a holy and righteous God, full of glory and full of holiness, shines around us, we tremble in fear like the shepherds, like Adam and Eve, and like Moses. But there's something different about this story in Luke chapter 2 that's different from Exodus and Genesis. The message that we find from the angels is speaking directly into the fear. The song the angels sing is a song of peace. And as we look into exactly the kind of peace that the angels are talking about, there's a simple kind of peace. And that simple kind of peace that the angels are talking about is salvation. The words are almost identical. And the, the correlation is the same. When the angels are speaking of peace, they're talking about salvation. They're talking about this wonderful grace and mercy of this holy and righteous God giving to them peace and joy. They're singing about ripping away the fear. About dabbing the tears away. About embracing them in comfort and joy rather than fear. About taking the, un, uh, taking the broken and making it whole. The kind of peace that moves us from the outside into the inside. Into the comfort and the presence of the king of the city and the king of creation. So this morning, this Advent season, my prayer is that the song of the angels, this song of peace would, would ring loudly in our souls, in our ears, in our lives. And so wherever you find yourself this day, today, with whatever fear may, you may be grappling with, whatever brokenness is tugging at your soul, Whatever brokenness has perhaps even overcome you. 
the one that pulls at the strings of your heart, at the very being of who you are. Can I ask you just to take a moment and hear the song of the angels? Hear the song of the Lord your God. That this is a song of good news, of great joy. They sing a song of peace, of salvation for you. So I hope that you are like me and you want to know more about what this peace looks like. Wait, I I want that kind of peace. The kind of peace that rips away my fear and embraces me in love and comfort and hope. The kind of peace that the angels sing about. For this is a wonderful song with a wonderful message. A wonderful song that points not to a manger, but to a Savior. A Savior who is born to provide this kind of peace, this salvation. So what is this peace? If I were to ask you this question and I were to take a survey of the congregation, I would presume that I would get some good answers. And I would get correct answers. I'm convinced of that. For the peace of the Lord is a vast and and a wide cast net and there are lots of ways in which we could describe the peace of the Lord. I think many of us would answer that question that the kind of peace that the Lord provides is is removing the hostility, bridging the gap between an unholy people and a holy God, restoring a relationship. One that was broken is now made whole, and that's right, and, and that is good. And this kind of peace eliminates that hostility. That's the fundamental truth behind the peace of God that's sung about by the angels. We know this. But I wonder, as we understand that truth, Do we think much more about that? Do we think further into what this peace actually does for us? Or is it just simply, well, that gets me into heaven. And that's great. And I like that gift. And I'm thankful for it. But here in this text, this kind of peace is shown to be even more glorious, even more robust, more full. And so I want to take a look at Luke 2 to give us two Bits of information, two results, two effects, two fruit of what this peace looks like. The kind of peace that's given through Jesus, our Savior. If you look at me, uh, with me, to verses 8 to 14, we see that the first result, the first effect, the first fruit of this peace, of this salvation, is joy. If you look back into that section of Luke's Gospel, we see that just after the angels comfort the fearful shepherds, the angels give them a reason not to fear, right? They said, do not fear. They see that they're terrified. They see that they're frightened. And the angel does, and he says, do not fear. In verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Don't fear, because I bring you a really good story. I bring you great news for all people. Because the shepherds now, they were once lost, now they're found. They were once crying, and now they laugh. They were once broken, and now they're whole. They were once dead, and now alive. This is the reality of what the person and the work of Jesus has accomplished. This is the story, this is the song that the angels are singing. This is a song for us, in our fear. In our sin, we too were once lost. In our sin, we too were once crying. In our sin, 
We were once broken, and in our sin, we were once dead. But through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, through His death, through His resurrection, we are found. And now we laugh. We are whole, and we are alive. What is joy? What is this joy that comes from this type of peace? Joy is the prodigal son returned and the father throwing a party that finally he is home. Joy is the woman at the well telling an entire village about her Savior and about all the things he knew about her. Joy is Miriam singing a song as she's seen the enemy swallowed on the sea. Joy is Zechariah singing at the glory and the wonder of the Lord and His provision as we saw last week. Joy is the angels singing about the birth of Jesus. Joy is the understanding that what the Lord has done for us is the greatest gift of grace and love and mercy. The only person who has the right to be truly joyful is the Christian. But the reality of our lives is that too many of us are rarely all that joyful. Joy to the unbeliever is based upon circumstances and events that are merely superficial. On the other hand, joy for the Christian comes from a source that that cannot be touched by the world. When we fail to understand that the magnitude of that to which we are heirs, we are prone to look around at the surrounding circumstances. We're prone to look at our own fear, our own problems, our own events, and we despair. And we're anxious and we're fearful for tomorrow. And we wonder what's happening to the world around me, what's happening to my family, what's happening to me. It's when we realize who Jesus is, what he's done for us, the reality of his continuing presence with us. This is when joy becomes a reality in our lives. So what is this joy? If we were to look at John 14, verse 27, Jesus is talking about peace. But He's also talking about joy at the very same time. And Jesus in that verse says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So first, the joy that Jesus wants us to see is His joy. Jesus spoke to his disciples about peace, saying, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but Jesus gives. Where does our peace come from? Our circumstances? Our events? All the things that we can control and manipulate and make sure everything is tidy and organized and just perfect? Our peace comes from the gift of our Savior. It comes from Him. In fact, it is His peace. His joy then is available to us. And He wants to see it in us. Secondly, He wants this joy to remain in us. He doesn't want us on a roller coaster of emotions. Well, maybe I'm joyful today. Maybe I'm joyful tomorrow. And that's not to say we're always supposed to be bubbly and happy and singing songs as we walk down the street. That's not what I'm saying. But the Christian is to be joyful. Not burdened by misery and anxiety. 
And this comes, this joy comes with abiding in Christ. And then thirdly, he distinguishes between his joy and our joy. He expresses the desire that our joy should be full. Isn't that what we all want? We all want to be full of this kind of joy. We don't like to be sad or or in misery or frustrated or anxious. We don't want a partial cup of joy. Give me the whole thing. Give me the whole glass. We want all the joy that the Father has for us. And that fullness of joy only comes from Jesus Christ. Only comes from this anointed Yahweh lying in a manger. And this is the joy that He gives to us. As we're united to Him. It's a joy that comes as we grow in Him and increases and becomes full as we abide in Him. And this joy is indeed something that we all long for. But as I've said, sometimes we forget about it. We forget about it because of the reality of our situations, our busyness, our lives. But I want us to go to another section of the Old Testament in the story of David. As he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, as Nathan confronts him with the litany of his sins, Psalm 51 rings with some of the most desperate and humble words in all of Scripture. What is David's desperate longing? What is David's request? He asks for forgiveness. He asks for salvation slash peace. But he asks two different times for something more. In verse 8, he pleads, in Psalm 51 verse 8, he pleads that the Lord would allow him to hear joy and gladness. To hear the good news of this forgiveness. He pleads that the brokenness would give way to wholeness. That sorrow would turn to joy and gladness. And the line that we all know really, really well from Psalm 51, verse 12. What does David say? Restore unto me what? The joy of of your salvation. And that joy is returned as David goes on to say something more. If you you were to look further down into Psalm 51, David says, if this joy is restored to me, if this forgiveness is given to me, and I'm full of this joy, something will happen. Righteousness and goodness will be restored. If that's restored, in verse 13 he says, that he asked his mouth would be open, that he would sing aloud the righteousness of the Lord. And in verse 15 of Psalm 51, he says these words, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will ever declare your praise. The second element of what this joy, of what this peace brings for us is praise. When we have this peace, when we have this salvation, we can't help but praise. Now turn again your eyes back to Luke chapter 2. The shepherds heard the angels and they got up And they went to go find this thing that had been told to them. They did find Mary. They did find Joseph. And they did find a manger. And they did find a baby lying in a manger. The angels knew what they were talking about. And in that moment, they saw Yahweh in the flesh. 
They saw their Messiah. They saw their Savior lying in a manger. The outcast and the lonely were now brought into the city, into the presence of the very throne room of heaven, into the presence of Yahweh Himself. They now realize that they were once lost and they are found. They once cried and now their fear has been removed. They were once broken and now they were whole. They were once dead and now they are alive. They had peace. They had salvation. And what was their response? Identical to that of David. We're not given the timeline by Luke, but it says that they'd gone away and they told everybody about what they'd seen. They couldn't help but talk about it. They told everybody. And Mary, I imagine, proudly and quietly, smirking to herself, smiled and pondered these stories in her heart as treasures for her to keep. And then in verse 20, we see the result of this peace, of this joy. The shepherds praised. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Just as David did so many years ago when he experienced the loving grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherds praised their God. And so praise is the fundamental element of a Christian response to this kind of peace, to this kind of salvation that the Lord gives to us. So as we inch closer each and every day and each and every week to casting our gaze into the manger and seeing Yahweh lying there, may we, just like David, just like the shepherds, have our response to praise the Lord. May that be on our lips, for He has given us peace through Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for us. For He has removed our fear, our anxieties. He has moved us from death to life. Friends, this is worthy of our praise. And He gives us peace. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we do indeed give You thanks for what You've accomplished for us. How You've given us peace. How You've given us salvation. And so, Holy Spirit, open our mouths to praise your name. For you are worthy of all praise and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.